With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. And so Luke is writing an orderly account to a man named Theophilus so that he would know the certainty of the things that he had been taught. You can imagine hearing that Jesus was born of a virgin. You can imagine all the miracles that had happened and being far removed from any of those circumstances in just the total upheaval in the whole Roman Empire due to this one man. And there was a lot of heresies entering in and all this type of stuff. And one of the very important things that Luke wanted to know is that this one believer would, be, would know for certain that Jesus was who the scriptures said he was according to eyewitnesses and people who saw it. And, and also, obviously, and all that is backed up by the word of God. And so that is what he's systematically doing. He starts pointing out to evidences of that fact that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that Jesus was the Christ. And in the law, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses, verse 15, it says, A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so Luke is bringing witness after witness to testify of the truth as he is bringing evidence forward so that the officers would know without a doubt that Jesus is indeed the Christ. And so in chapter 2, Luke gives us two witnesses that testify that Jesus is the Messiah. The first was Simeon, which we went over previously, and now in verse 36 is Anna. Let's pick up there. Verse 36 says, There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. And she never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. And coming up to them at the very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. And so Anna is identified as a prophet, a widow, and a righteous and devout woman who was praying and fasting day and night. She never left the temple. I'm going to come back to the prophet part in a second, but Anna was a widow. Um, she most likely was married young, as was common in those days. Women often got married when they, when they became of age, so 12 or 13 years old. And they started their families. Remember, it was much more communal in those times. And her husband, probably uh, similar, same age. You know that in Jewish culture, around the year 20 is when guys go to war. So it could very have been that he went to war when he was 21 years old and passed away. There's also... Uh, different readings of this because it's hard to understand uh, as far as how old she was. But basically, 84, 104, whatever it was, she was an older woman. She was a widow. And what did she do when she was a widow? Uh, it says um, that she never left the temple, but she worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. You know, this is significant because it seems that it became a model uh, of a Christ-honoring woman of God who had lost her husband. And we know this because later in 1 Timothy chapter 5, the question of how the church was to help widows uh, in need comes up. And Paul spends a great deal of a chapter speaking to this. 
And we know that true and undefiled religion is helping those who really cannot help themselves. True, widows and orphans is, is kind of how James... Now, that's not, that's not just uh, narrowed down to those two things, but the idea behind it is that true love is not something where you get something out of it. Your motivation is so that you can help yourself, but it is truly giving to those who have no ability to give back. And isn't that what the Father did with us when we were totally, absolutely, 100%, totally sunk? He reached down in His great love and loved us with a love we did not deserve. And so that's to be extended. And, and so Paul says, uh, uh, Paul would say, in first to, speaking to Timothy about how the church is to treat widows, he says in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3, he says, Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family. So, and so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to the Lord. Boy, our, ch- our, our church needs to learn that again. Church meaning America church. Amen? We take care of our parents when they took care of us. That's, that's a beautiful thing. Um, that's something to be taught and something to be encouraged. And so Paul is saying, listen, if you've got believing family and they do not go and take care of their family, listen, they need to be in some correction. And so they're the ones to be taking the burden because the burden of the church is to be focused on those who are truly in need and cannot help themselves. So the widow who is really in need, Paul says, and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Paul doesn't, you know, he's just saying, hey, listen, there's a difference here. There's people who really need help and there's people who, uh, you know, are in everybody else's business and really just need to get a job. (laughs) Right? And there's no problem with a pastor speaking to that. I don't know why we got so sensitive about stuff. I think that's it's because it's godly. That's fearing the Lord. You see, someone who's truly in need, someone who's really hurting, what do you do with that? There's obviously great loss in that person's life, but what did she do with her pain? What did she do with her needs? What did she do with her hurt in her life? Where did she go? She went to the Lord. And that's precious in the sight of God. See, that's faith. Where do we go with our pain and our heartaches and our loneliness it says but the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives but give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame anyone who does not provide for relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever boy that's a strong shot there but so some pretty direct words, and Paul goes on, but uh, there in verse 5 of 1 Timothy chapter 5, it says, The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. And that's what we see with Anna, isn't it? That's where she was. And this is the kind of widow she was. She was in need, and it would seem she took her needs to the Lord day and night through fasting and prayer. Fasting and prayer. No matter what stage of life you are in, there's always a way to honor the Lord with your situation. You know that? There's, an always, there's always a way to worship the Lord. It would bring Him glory. Anna was a widow, and yet in this difficulty, she devoted herself to God. 
and used her, uh, God used her as a witness to Jesus Christ. And that speaks to the prophet part. Anna was also a prophet. Now, boy, in our culture, that's just like, what does that mean? Um, a prophet was a person who spoke the word of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that didn't contradict the word of God, by the way. Um, I think it's very important to note that in Revelation 19, an angel appeared to John, and because of the glory of, of, of this angel and the message he had, John fell down and began to worship this angel because angels are awesome. And the angel said in Revelation 19, hey, don't do that. Good angels say don't do that, right? Don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and your sisters who hold the testimony of Jesus Christ. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. It's very important to know. Sadly, we get people who claim to be prophets or people to be spokesmen for God, and yet their words do not testify of Jesus Christ. And you can get it from the pulpit. You can get it from wherever it is, but they don't point to Jesus. They don't glorify the Lord. It isn't about Him. It's about something else. It's about you. You know, I was listening to um, Robbie Zacharias this week. I forwarded it on to the elders. But he has Christianity let you down is basically what was what he was talking about. Very smart guy. Um, but loves the Lord intensely. And he says what, what, quite often what happens is the preaching from the pulpits tries to make God, who is a square peg, into the round hole of the earth. And we try to conform him, and then we have these expectations of God that aren't really who he is, and we get let down. The reality is we need to conform to his reality of who he is and who he says he is, and that's what our hearts need. Amen? I think that's very important, but prophets quite often, there's nothing wrong with relating the Lord to people, and obviously Jesus did that, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like, but a prophet will appeal to our fallen nature, a false prophet that is. But Anna was a prophet who testified of Jesus Christ. And this is where we can see those false prophet works, when what they say draws attention and glory away from the person of Jesus Christ. And so Anna was a prophet who did testify of Jesus, as we read in verse 38, where it says, Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child, Jesus, to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. You see, her words were focused around the child and what he'd do in his, in his relationship to them. And so Anna, which means grace, was full of thanks to God and spoke about the child Jesus to all who are looking forward to the redemption of Israel. Now, it doesn't give specifics about what she said, but nevertheless, Zechariah and Mary and Simeon and now Anna, these major themes were all centered around the redemption of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem and the people of God. That's what they declared. And Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was sent to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. And Jesus, the Messiah, would redeem Jerusalem. He would buy them back. Now, the first time he came, it was to pay for sin. And as we know, we always want to hear the message we want to hear, right? And so I want to hear about the guy who's going to rescue me and come in and, and make all the things straight and make straighten out government and do all that stuff. That's my Jesus. Right? No doubt he's that guy. But that's the second time. First time he came to pay for sin and redeem spiritual Israel. 
the people of God with his own blood. The Messiah bought back sinful men and reconciled them towards God. And so in her old age, Anna was a witness to Jesus Christ that he would be the one to redeem Israel. Quite beautiful. Let's move on. Verse 39. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee into their own town of Nazareth. Luke keeps on going back and saying this phrase. When they've done everything required by the law, required by the law, required by the law. Why is he saying that? What's he want to communicate? Jesus was very much a Jew, was he not? And he, his parents were Jewish, and they were doing everything required by the law. Jesus was a Jew. He was born under the law to redeem those under the law. As Galatians 4, 4 says, it says, But when the set time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And so Luke keeps referencing that, uh, that they have done everything required by the law of the Lord. Verse 40, and the child grew up and became strong and he was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was with him. How would you like to say that about your child? He grew up and he was strong in spirit. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him or her. That's what I long for. That's what I want to see. I want to see Jesus in my kids. Amen? And so we see Jesus fully God, yet fully man here. He becomes strong. This means strong in spirit, as New King James says. And then he's filled with the wisdom of God in his mind, and the grace of God was with him, so the Father's love was upon him. He's, Hebrews 1 speaks of this, but he will hear, uh, and will hear at the baptism, the Father speak to the Son, and he says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The grace of God was upon him. And so, what should we pray for our grandchildren and our children? What should we aim for in our lives and how we arrange what we do and how we pray and seek and all those things? That, that they would become strong in spirit. Able to resist the evil one. And this is the core of why we want to bring a youth pastor director here. is so that we have a continued focus, another tool in the arsenal of the family. To say, we want our children to grow up to be strong in spirit. In other words, when the enemy comes and starts to attack, they might get hit. But guess what? There's a resilience in there. Because they know their God. He's spoken to him. He, they hear his voice. And, and sadly, I, I know many of us have never heard God speak to us. And when I say that, it is not like, you know, the voice from heaven comes down. But sensing when you're reading scripture that the Lord is speaking to you about a certain subject, learning the voice of the Lord. Uh, my sheep know my voice. Being convicted when you know you're going off the path. And he's saying, come back. Come back. Now you also know the voice of the devil. He's the one who rubs your nose in it and smacks you around. Right? And tells you you're never good enough and God's not going to forgive you and all that type of stuff. Yeah, but Jesus is the one who goes and grabs you, picks you up, and puts you on his shoulders and brings you back home. Know that voice. Learn that voice. So what voices are you listening to? What, what voices encourage that? And what voices dispel that in your mind? What, what voices cause distortion? I would encourage you to seek the voice 
of the Lord, but we want them to be strong in spirit and that they be filled with the wisdom of God. You know, we're in an age of knowledge. How many of us know a lot? I mean, you don't even need to talk to people anymore. You just go to Google or you YouTube it. You know, I really encourage you younger people to go the long way. Go develop a relationship and talk to someone who's done it. I know you can do that through the internet, but I'm telling you, there's nothing like sitting down with Artie and learning how to load guns so I don't kill myself, you know, or loading road rounds, you know, or learning, you know, just different things in life. People have experience and you develop conversations. You start asking about who they are and you start finding, it's beautiful. I think we, we, we've lost that in many ways. But wisdom is not just knowledge. It's knowing how to apply that knowledge. There's a lot of smart people out there who are as dumb as nails. Look at Hollywood. I'm just saying, I've, me, look at me. I mean, I'm smart, but that's a good prideful. Okay, I'm smart. No, I'm just kidding. You know what I'm talking about. When someone is truly wise in the Lord, it is just a breath of fresh air. When you see them approach a situation, and it's not just how the world does things, but they, they seek the heart of the Lord in the matter. And they get his sense and his timing about how to go about something. And, and, their, and their, their chief goal in life is, does this glorify you, Lord? Does this please your heart, Father? And that's how they make decisions in life. And they go seek to find that. Now that is how we want our children to be. That's who Jesus was. And pray that our children, our grandchildren, would just have the grace of God upon them. That as they walk in that strength of spirit, as they're fortified in the Lord, as they have the wisdom of the Lord upon them, that the grace of God would be upon them. You just sense His hand upon their lives. And that's what I long for in my life, in your life, and especially in our kids' lives coming forward. And that's what we're going to aim for this year as a, as a fellowship, moving towards that. How to do that. How to practically work that out as families. What more things can we do um, to honor the Lord? What tools can we put in our arsenal? How can we change our thinking? What classes can we take? What people can we get around to change? Not just in you know, a classroom, but just how can we grow in that? How many of you need help? Gosh, you know, you didn't come with a manual like raise your kids this way. You know, many of us grew up with parents, and parents, by the way, aren't perfect. Any of you learn that? And our default is kind of what they did, or we find something new, and what is replacing that? Usually what the world tells you to do, right? We want to replace it with the Word, with the things of the Spirit. And so I'm longing that, that our children would know God's intense good pleasure towards them as they walk in the strength and wisdom and not in weakness and foolishness. Amen? In verse 41, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the, fe- for the festival of the Passover, so they went to church once a year. No, I'm just kidding. But this is important because every male Jew was required by law in Exodus 23, verse 17, and Deuteronomy 16, 16, for extra credit, to go and appear before the Lord three times a year. And appearing before the Lord would be in Jerusalem at the feast. And so they would travel with their families in big groups to Jerusalem, verse 42. And when he was 12 years old, when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. And after the festival was over, so they had seven days or however long it was, they were out there uh, worshiping and hanging out and eating food. And it was a great time. 
and consecrating themselves to the Lord once again. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. And they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. If you've ever lost your child for a bit, you know the feeling. Just pure panic. Anybody else ever done that? Yes, just me. A couple nodheads. Yeah. But here, Joseph and Mary, they lost the Messiah. You know how (laughs) we lost the Son of God. That's just kind of not good parenting. Yes, just, you know, the child protection services from the priest go, this is not good. But you know, it's not that difficult to do. It's not that difficult to do. Yeah, as I mentioned, uh, they were traveling in a caravan. There's family and friends. You know, after, after church, uh, we often hang out and we're, we're talking and are chatting. And our kids just kind of, they just have fun, right? And there have been a couple times when I can't find Ruth. Ruth is my person that I am always looking for. And, and she's, you know, she's busy about her father's business doing something good. But I'm like, and I just start to panic. I'm like, I don't know everybody here, even though there's a sense of, and then you just kind of second, you know, oh my gosh, what, you know, what have I done and where could she be? And, oh man, she was someone going to grab her in a car and they're gone and I have no clue. I mean, you just start going, right? And you get worked up. So Joseph and Mary must have had that sense that he was hanging around. And when they made camp and dinner time came around, they realized they lost the son of God there. And so they started asking around, and you can imagine that sense of dread. Hey, where is he? Where is he? And they realized they must have left him in Jerusalem, where thousands upon thousands, perhaps a million, I think Josephus says, people are converged during this time. And I've been there. It's not that big of a city. And so they went back to where they had last seen him in Jerusalem. You know, there's a, there's a picture here for us. Do you see it? I think the Holy Spirit subtly, he does the surface thing, but there's also a subtle thing there, you know, that we can often go and have a great time worshiping God and then go on our way, leaving the Lord behind. I was just thinking about that. You know, I know that Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. So we know that truth, right? So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about salvation, but I'm talking about and that type of stuff. But I'm talking about sensing that we are in step with His Spirit in a tight, abiding, loving relationship with Jesus. When you know you have that, you know you're with each other. In other words, you're in step with the Spirit. You know that He's with you. And you're with Him. We can, to, we can assume, just like Joseph and Mary, that Jesus is hanging around the church somewhere. Right? But when is the last time you've laid eyes on Him? When is the last time you've beheld his glory, sensed his presence, known that you were in step with him? It's easy to go to church and take off and leave Jesus in the building, so to speak. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit. It gives us that loving reminder something was missing today. Anybody walk at the end of your day and go, you know what? I just went through this whole day and I missed you. Anybody, like, get three days into the week, and you're kind of like, whoa, where's Jesus? Did we leave him? Like, oh, yeah, God, I'll get back to you. 
And anybody have that snowball into a week? Two weeks? A little bit longer? You guys a year in? Two years in? Five years in? Ten years in? And that's your walk? And you're miserable? Praise the Lord for the Holy Spirit. He doesn't give up on us. Amen? I am just like that. I'm just like that. I am so prone to that. And by God's grace, we too get into a panic because we know that we're sunk without being near Him. Amen? And we just start panicking like crazy. Oh, crud, what do I do with my life? Oh, yeah, Jesus. Right? Like I said, He never leaves, but we can block Him out. We can make Him insignificant. We can minimize Him. We can grieve Him. And so, like Mary and Joseph, go seek him again. Go find him. Among the relatives, among the friends, go searching. Get that fellowship in. But you're going to find him where you left him, where he abides, in his Father's presence. That's where he always is. He's in his Father's presence. Seek his presence again, brothers and sisters. Don't go another day on your journey without knowing that you are in that sweet, abiding, loving relationship with Jesus. Back to Mary and Joseph, verse 46. And after three days they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking him them questions. Uh, three days, interesting number. Jesus likes to come back in threes there. But not your typical 12-year-old. He wasn't, uh, you know, after doing all these other things. He was in the temple, courts, conversing with the teachers of Israel, the theologians, asking them questions. And that's something I've had to work on, asking questions. How many 12-year-olds do you have asking questions in your life? Can I? <laughs> you know, instead of what is. It's very interesting. It just kind of changes. It shifts sometimes, right, right around there. There's a sense of, I, I just know it all. But Jesus is asking questions. And here the teachers of the word are there. And no doubt Jesus at 12 had a command of scripture and an understanding of the law and the heart behind it. And he was just amazing them. And here the, the teachers of the word had a three-day Bible study with the word that became flesh. Quite amazing. Everyone who heard him was amazed, it said. You know, this is true today. If you truly listen to Jesus speak, if you allow him to speak into your heart, you will be amazed. You will be amazed. He will show you things and speak into your soul in ways that you wouldn't. How in the world could he ever have known that's what I was going through, what I needed, or how that happened, or what I should do? His word just is so powerful. But you'll never be the same when he speaks to you. Verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? She's freaking out. Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And Jesus answered, verse 49, why are you searching for me? He asked. You got to understand, this is total obedient, non-rebellious kid. Not a mean bone in his body. There's no... And Amasi did not do this to them in spite of them. And, and, and to, you know, this isn't like he's not kicking into teenage years. 
This is their problem. And now they're saying, why did you? They're assuming that he did that to them. And Jesus is going to flip it around on them here. He says, why are you searching for me? As didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? I'm busy about my father's business. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. What a profound statement. Jesus was saying, you should have known where I was. You should have known where I was. Do you know me? He'll say that a lot. Who do you say that I am? But a lot is here, but I'm choosing not to go down many paths because the point of the passage is to clearly declare the identity of Jesus Christ to us. I want to stay narrow, okay? We can go into a lot of different areas and how Mary and mother, kid, and response and all this type of stuff. Just Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus' father was not Joseph. Jesus' father was God. His true home was not with Joseph and Mary. His true home was with his father. Jesus later in John 14 says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believed in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. Where is he? In his father's house. Now we know the physical temple is a representation of a spiritual reality. You know the place where I'm going, is what Jesus said to his disciples. You know where I'm going. I'm going to be with my Father. Jesus' home is with the Father. He is the Son of God. And his true family is not his biological family. And obviously we're not minimizing the role of Mary, blessed among women. At the end of his life, he, takes, he speaks to John, and he says, John, this is now your mother. Take care of her. He loved his mother. That's not the question. But there's a, there's a true family in God. His true family was not his biological family. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus in his teaching, he's teaching in a house. He starts in verse 33. He says, then Jesus' mother, Elizabeth says, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him. And they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus' response is, who are, my mother? Uh, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mothers and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm Mary outside, that hurts. Jesus came to bring a sword. And Simeon had just said, Mary, a sword's coming to your own heart. The kingdom divides all of humanity into those who are born of the Spirit and those who are not. Obviously, Mary was. But those who have surrendered their life to Jesus Christ and who have been born again, that is one group, and those who have not are not. And so it is with us. 
Jesus a little further in John 14 as we close. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own lives, such a person cannot be my disciple. You see, your identity cannot be found in these relationships if you are born again. Like Jesus, your identity must be with your father first and foremost. That's what it means to be a kingdom, and that is why it's so narrow. If you allow earthly relationships to rule, centered in your own will, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus. It's a hard teaching. As disciples, we live to do the will of the Father, not the will of our parents, not our spouses, not our children, or even our own will, but rather the Father's will. And let me tell you, all those things will come in against the Father's will in your life at some time and some point. And Jesus is saying, you've got to love me more than them when I call you. Now, obviously, the teaching, we can go into the New Testament about loving your family, taking care of your family. You see, these two, don't, they don't contradict. We're not saying to hate your family and ignore them and be a jerk. No, Paul actually goes on and says, live in such a way to where the lost will actually be attracted to the kingdom, to the word, right? So you got to know that part. But even though you have relatives who you love and who you long to see Jesus come to, amen? They don't call the shots. That relationship does not trump the Father's will in your life. And let me tell you, that hits to the core of my life and your life, does it not? What if the Father tells you to do something contrary to the person you love the most? That's hard stuff. People who loved Jesus dearly don't do this. You don't have to do this. And Jesus would say, it's not my will. It's the Father's will. And the Father's will is always good for everybody. <laughs> you know? And so here Jesus, as a young man at 12, is seeking his father. And Mary and Joseph should have known where he would be. But they didn't understand. They later would. Mary would. Verse 51, And then he went down to Nazareth with them. And was obedient to them. You see, this wasn't a rebellious streak. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. And so verse 51 covers the time from him being 12 years old to 30. We don't know much. We just know that the words of Jesus between the time he was born and his ministry starting was just, you should have known where I was. I'm busy, but I'm in my father's house. That's all we got in those years. But Luke is pointing to this because there is a divorce between um, his family and the father that happens. In other words, he is going to follow the father. And isn't that what we want for our kids I want them to hear the Lord and to follow Him no matter where that is, even if it breaks my heart. Because me and my weakness will say, don't do something that's going to hurt you. 
don't do something that's going to hurt you. I want to protect you. I want to hold you. I want to make sure every these things are good. And God might send them into the most dire circumstances for his kingdom. They've got to hear his voice. And those are the kids we want to raise up. Strong in spirit. Full of wisdom. And the grace of God is upon them. Amen? Lord God, we ask that you would be supreme in our life this morning. That your sword would come cut our hearts. In whatever relationship is above you now, it's an idol. And while it might be good, if it's in that place, it's sin. And so, Lord, help us to correct that in our hearts, Lord. Come in and show us your love. Remind us of how much you have paid to bring us into your family. And God, I pray that our eyes for the outside world, those who do not know you, would be opened arms and hands out and lives that proclaim your goodness. And I pray we drag as many people into your kingdom as possible by your grace and how we live. Lord, let there be no other king but King Jesus. And so today we just commit everything to you. Father, your will be done this week. We love you. Amen.